0: Well, when I was a sophomore in high school, it was the first time that some of my classmates started to regularly have laptops that they would bring to school. Ostensibly, I think they were supposed to be used to take notes and write papers, uh, but equipped with the latest and greatest Microsoft operating system, Windows Vista, they wowed and impressed their classmates with new ways to ignore our teacher and neglect our schoolwork. And I think that one of the most popular distractions that my classmates offered was Google Earth. We were easily entertained and we would gather around the laptop and we'd zoom in on each other's homes. And I remember being, being amazed that we could zoom in on these world-famous landmarks and images. And I'll never forget how incredible I thought it was that we could see the world and then North America and the Midwest and Indiana. And then we'd zoom in to my parents' tiny little backyard in the south side Indianapolis subdivision. And I think that in a similar way, Psalm 66 has, has a similar funneling effect. It starts out with the consideration of the whole earth. And then it narrows in to the church and finally to a single individual. One commentator, he, he called this psalm God of all, God of many, God of one. It funnels in. And and yet, while the audience of the psalm changes from stanza to stanza, overarching every section, it's a unified theme and a unified aim that God would be praised for His works. Praised by the earth, praised by the church, and praised by the individual Christian. At every level, this psalm calls for praise and worship of our great God. And, And so our theme this morning is simple. Praise and bless God for His redeeming and refining works and testify of them. Praise and bless God for His redeeming and refining works and testify of them. And we'll consider this theme under three headings. I I think you might have a bulletin insert. If that's helpful, you can find them there. First, praise God for His works of redemption. Secondly, bless God for His works of refinement. And finally, testify to God, or testify of God's kindness in His works. And first, look with me at verses one to seven, where we'll see especially that you are to praise God for His works of redemption. You can see that that right off the bat, the the psalmist begins with a really ambitious imperative, calling all the all the earth to worship and praise God. Look at verse one. He says. Shout for joy to God, all the earth. Sing the glory of His name. Uh, Give to Him glorious praise. That's why our call to worship this morning was Psalm 100. It's it's almost the exact same uh, words, just a different divine name, but calling all the earth to worship God. And and in God's providence, your, your Psalm of the Month 96, we saw that similar theme. That the families of the earth, of all the earth, are called to praise God. It's not just Israel. The, the psalmist here I think combines as it were the, the first and the second petitions of the Lord's Prayer which, which call for God's name to be glorified and God's kingdom to come. And I think it's interesting that, that the psalmist uh, he, he furnishes the peoples of the earth with, with a kind of vocabulary for praise. Verse 3 begins, Say to God, it's, it's as if the psalmist knew that the nations of the earth they wouldn't know how to praise God they wouldn't know how to bless God and so he gives them a vocabulary you know just as Jesus he he taught his disciples to pray didn't he he said pray then like this you know here the psalmist as it were he he, he teaches the nations of the earth to praise he says praise then like this say to God this is how you worship God and the first thing that the psalmist calls the world to do is to praise God for the greatness of His power through which He subdues the nations. Verse 3 says, Say to God, how awesome are your deeds! So great is your power that your enemies come cringing to you. That, that word, Those words come cringing in uh, at least my translation there. A tricky Hebrew word to translate. It can mean to, to deceive or to deal falsely. Depending on which translation you have, it will have... Uh, the enemies of God submitting to God or, or feigning obedience or pretending to obey. But, but regardless of how to best translate into English that word, the, the image that we're left with at the end of verse 3 is of the nations of the earth coming to God, but, but grudgingly. You, you think of two boys who are, who are fighting and one of them cats out and he says, Uncle, he submitted, but he's not real happy about that. But the next verse, verse 4, it offers encouragement. That, that although the power of God can make His enemies cringe, He's stronger still. He's stronger still and He can make His enemies worship. Verse 4, it, it speaks of worshiping and praising and singing. This is no longer a forced submission, but heartfelt praise from nations who have come to know and love and serve Israel's God. This... Verse 4 promises the the realization of the Abrahamic covenant that in Abraham and in his seed, Jesus Christ, all the families of the earth would be blessed. And part of of the realization of that blessing is that all the nations and families of the earth would come to worship and serve Abraham's God. Verse 4 shows us that, that the hope of Old Testament Israel was and is the same as that of the New Testament church. That one day the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Habakkuk two fourteen. But if as we move on, if, if in verses one to four the the world is called on to praise God for his power, in verses five to seven, the, the nations are called on to praise God for the works of his power, specifically his work of redemption. Look at verses five to six. to incredible verses, they say, Come and see. Come and see what God has done. He is awesome in His deeds toward the children of man. He turned the sea into dry land. They passed through the river on foot. Here, I think that the psalmist is calling attention to two bookends of one of the greatest Old Testament types and pictures of redemption. Where first, Israel crossed the Red Sea on dry land, and and then they were being brought out of captivity. And then remember, before they went into the Promised Land, the Jordan stopped her flow and they crossed the Jordan on foot. And in the context of redemption, brothers and sisters, as we contemplate the Red Sea crossing and the crossing of the Jordan, we we see that the power of God, it can save from sin, death, and the devil. We, We see that the power of God can overcome the raging of the nations as Israel was brought out of Egypt with a mighty hand and with an outstretched arm. We see that the power of God can bring hope where there was despair and freedom where there was slavery and life where there was death Death, as God uh, released His people from slavery in Egypt. And isn't it noteworthy? Isn't it noteworthy where in the psalm we find this celebration of redemption? It's in the call to the nations. Israel calls the nations to bless God that Israel has been brought out. Egypt included. Egypt is called to bless God that Israel was redeemed from Egypt. And in in such a context, I I think that this celebration of God's redemption, it's it's serving as an invitation. It's serving as an invitation. The psalmist says in verse 6, that the redeemed of the Lord did rejoice and are rejoicing and will continue to rejoice in the salvation of our God and the Word to the nations is that they can join the party. They can join the party by faith in Christ. The nations of the earth are invited to make the victory song of Moses and Miriam their own song. The nations of the earth are invited, as in the words of Psalm 87, to join those from Egypt and Babylon and Philistia and Tyre and Sidon and Cush, All of whom are reckoned in God's economy of grace as citizens of Zion. Those of whom the Lord says, This one was born there. There's a powerful invitation. But also there's a stern warning. Look at verse 7. It says, God rules by his might forever, whose eyes keep watch on the nations. Let not the rebellious exalt themselves. The nations are here reminded. That, that to deny the gracious offer of the Gospel, to, to refuse to kiss the Son, it's foolhardy rebellion in the eyes of the God who rules the nations by His power. And if any of you are outside of Christ this morning, if any of you haven't trusted in Christ, this warning's for you. Don't Don't rebel against the Almighty who has invited you to have life and have peace. Don't rebel against Him. It's foolhardy rebellion. But you've got to see also, if you're outside of Christ, you've got to see that incredible invitation in verse 5. It says, come and see. Come and see. I'm, I'm from a larger family. I have seven brothers and sisters and four of them are older than I am. And one of the great things about having a lot of brothers and sisters is that as you go on in life, you start to collect a pretty significant data set. You watch your siblings and you see what works and you see what doesn't. You see where rebellion gets them. And you see where obedience gets them. And you see what they do that works and what they do that doesn't. I remember when I was 10 years old, my oldest brother, he was choosing a college. And he chose Purdue University in West Lafayette, Indiana, a little bit north of Indianapolis. And, and he absolutely loved it. And then my older sister was choosing a college and she went to Purdue and she loved it. And then another brother and another sister, they all went to Purdue. And as, as I got older, when I got into high school, I was allowed to occasionally uh, go up for a weekend and visit them. I was able to come and see. I, I, I watched a football game and I saw my brothers, how much fun they had uh, you know, in the dorms at Purdue. And I saw the dining courts, and I thought, that's incredible. And I... I saw a wonderful church and opportunities for Christian fellowship. And no surprise, but by the time I was a senior in high school, I was practically frothing at the mouth to get to Purdue. I'd come and seen. And for you unbelievers, maybe it's a silly invita- illustration because this invitation, it's not an invitation to come and see how much fun you could have at university. No, it's an invitation to come and see the works of God. Come and see what God has done. It's an invitation to come and see how God in Christ has redeemed the people. See how in Christ orphans are given a father and a family. See how the hungry and the thirsty and the destitute are are given water and wine and bread and milk all without money and without price. Unbelieving friends, come and see the works of God. He is awesome in His deeds towards the children of man. The psalmist he, he calls the nations of the earth to praise the God of the earth for his powerful works, especially his powerful work of redemption. But, but as the psalm progresses, remember the audience, it narrows in. The, the people singing, rather, it narrows in. The psalmist moves to a more narrow call to the people of God. And we'll see under our second heading that the psalmist calls on the church to bless God for his works. Of refinement, this is our second heading. Bless God for his works of refinement. It may not be obvious that that there's been an an audience shift between verses seven and then verse verse seven and then verses eight to twelve. It's still corporate. The address is still to you peoples, but, but our clue to the change in audience it comes from the pronouns. The, the psalmist does not generically say, bless God, O peoples. He has kept souls among the living and has not let feet, our, has not let feet slip. No, you, you see, he uses plural possessive pronouns. He's our God. He keeps our souls among the living. He does not allow our feet to be slipped. This is the church, the people of God who are called to bless our God and to let the sound of His praise be heard. And this, this probably isn't particularly shocking to you. We, we sing the songs every week. We're, we're familiar maybe with these calls to bless God. Perhaps we're used to the language of, of ways that God sustains us. Even as we see in verse 9 that God keeps our souls among the living and does not allow our feet to be moved. But if you're unfamiliar with this Psalm, I think that what comes next is, is truly shocking. Truly surprising. The psalmist recounts a period of trials and difficulties, a period of testing and refining, a period of affliction and pain. And the psalmist identifies God as the source. The psalmist says that these things came from God. Look at verse 10. For You, O God, have tested us. You laid a crushing burden on our backs You let men ride over our heads. We went through fire and through water. Brothers and sisters, Psalm 66 is teaching a staggering truth. God is behind the suffering. God is behind the the discomfort and the agony. God is behind it. Our catechism had asked this question. I think it's question 7. What are the decrees of God? And it gives this answer. The decrees of God are His eternal purpose according to the counsel of His own will, whereby for His own glory He has foreordained whatsoever comes to pass. Whatsoever. It's all-encompassing. Matthew Henry comments, we are never in the net, but God brings us into it. Never under affliction, but God lays it upon us. Have you wrestled with this truth, Christian friends? Have you wrestled with God's hand in your suffering? And His hand in your trials? This is what theologians will call the question of theodicy. How can a God be sovereign and good when there's such evil in the world? And I think as Christians, the question is more acute for us. How can God be sovereign and good when there's such suffering in my life and in the lives of His people? This matter of God's sovereignty in and over our trials. This is not a a vague theological truth that's only dealt with in dry seminary classrooms or obscure works of systematic theology. No, this is an experiential question. And it's wrestled with at hospital bedsides and hospital operating rooms. It's wrestled with at gravesides. It's wrestled with by Christians who flood their bed with tears each night asking God, Why? You think about Christians who long for assurance of God's love, but they never seem to get it. They ask God, why? It's wrestled with by patients who have received a discouraging diagnosis, the cancer is back, or the procedure was unsuccessful. They ask God, why? It's wrestled with by mothers who have miscarried and parents who lose their children. And we could go on and on giving examples of Christians who ask God, Why? Why is this happening? Why this much pain? Why am I sick? Why is my loved one unwell? Why have I worked so hard yet seen no fruit? God, why have I prayed so long but only found the heavens above me as brass? God, why am I going through fire and through water? Brothers and sisters, I don't know. I don't know all your trials. I don't know your pains and your anxieties but listen to the passage is offering you a helpful perspective. It's the perspective of a people who have been brought through trials. Through fire and flood. And what's their analysis of these trials? What do they see as they look back on these trials? What do they see God doing? They say, verse 10, for You, O God, have tested us. You have tried us. It's the language you know, of, of, of metal being refined and superheated and the dross and the slag comes to the top and is scraped off. And sometimes, sometimes in God's providence, we, we see that He'll discipline us to keep us from pursuing a sinful path. Sometimes discipline and trials are in response to sin. But in this psalm, that's not the case. It is not true that every trial and every hard providence is a discipline for sin. Instead, we're seeing here in Psalm 66 a God who grows His church through adversity and refines His people through fire. Some of you may know know the name of Samuel Rutherford, a 17th century Scottish minister himself acquainted with trials. His wife was, was desperately sick. He was exiled from his church. And he wrote a letter once He wrote a letter once to a woman who was in great distress and anguish. And he wrote to her, he said, Madam, herein shall ye have comfort that he who seeth perfectly and knoweth your frame and what is most helpful to your soul holdeth every cup of affliction to your head with his own gracious hand. He went on, Never believe that your tender-hearted Savior who knoweth the strength of your stomach, will mix that cup of affliction with one ounce of poison. Drink then with the patience of the saints, and the God of patience bless your medicine. Brothers and sisters, our psalm is teaching us that our trials are medicine. It is by way of these trials and not despite these trials that God keeps our soul among the living and does not allow your feet to slip. Although a child may may cry and cringe at the doctor's needle, it's a loving medicine to protect and bless the child. And although we may balk at the afflictions in our life and at the hard path on which our Savior has called us to walk, we can be sure, you can be sure, Christian friends, that come from the hand of a loving Father. These trials, they deepen our fellowship with our Savior, who was Himself, remember, a man of trials, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. They grow us in sanctification as the fires cleanse and the waters wash. They grow us in reliance on our ever-present God who has promised us, Isaiah 43:2, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you, and through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, nor shall the flame scorch you. But notice, notice, notice lastly under this heading that our trials are a preamble to rest. Our trials, Christian friends, are a preamble to rest. The psalmist concludes this section of our psalm at the end of verse 12. He says, yet You have brought us out to a place of abundance. Some of your translations may say a place of rich fulfillment. The, the word is literally it's a place of saturation or a place of overflow. It's the same word used in Psalm 23 to describe that cup of blessing. That cup that runs over. The people of God, now having come to the other side of their trials, they look at the place of prepared for them and they see abundance and they see rich fulfillment. But brothers and sisters, it was after their trials. It was after their trials. The wilderness comes before the land flowing with milk and honey. The night of weeping comes before the morning of joy. Humiliation comes before exaltation. And brothers and sisters, fire and water come before a place of abundance. The Apostle Paul was in anguish at times, wasn't he? He was beaten and stoned and shipwrecked. Adrift at sea. He says he was in danger from Jews, danger danger from Gentiles, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger in the city, and he goes on. And yet he could still reason. 2 Corinthians 4.17 for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Christian friends, Christian friends, never lose sight of the eternal weight of glory yet to be revealed. Never doubt that as you walk through your your, your season of affliction, your Savior holds your hand. Never doubt that as your Savior leads you through dark nights of the soul, the time is set even now when the day will break and the shadows will flee away. The thrust of verses 8-12 to is not that we bless God because our trials are insignificant. Oh, we bless You, God, because we've never had a hard day. We bless You because nothing hard has ever happened to us. No, we bless God because through our refining trials, we're kept among the living, kept steadfast, and in due season brought to a place of abundance. So far, we've seen that we're to praise God for His redeeming works and we're to bless God for His refining works. But notice, finally, as we consider verses thirteen to twenty, that we are to testify of God's kindness in His works. Testify of God's kindness in His works. And, and notice, first, under this heading, excuse me, that, that that we, in a sense, in a sense, we testify to God of His own kindness with us after the peoples of God have been brought through trial, brought through fire and flood, the psalmist, now singing alone, says in verse 13, I I will come into your house with burnt offerings. I will perform my vows. And he, he goes on in verse 15. He says, I will offer to you burnt offerings of fattened animals with the smoke of the sacrifice of rams, I will make an offering of bulls and goats. The first place, the first place that he went after being brought to a place of abundance, is into God's house. He comes with offerings, fulfilling what he'd vowed to God when he was in trouble. In the original context, the psalmist he brings a burnt offering. And remember that that the burnt offering, it was wholly devoted to God. Unlike some of the other offerings where the priest had a portion, or the one who brought the sacrifice had a portion, the the whole burnt offering, it was completely devoted to the Lord. This is the idea of, of completely Godward worship. And so when God brings us through trials, Christian friends, when God brings you through trials, we offer Him worship. Certainly not with the sacrifice of animals. What what do we offer Him? What do we offer God when He's brought us through trials? First, we we offer Him the sacrifice of praise. Hebrews 13.15 Therefore, by Him, by Christ, let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to His name. That's, That's an image of the sacrifice of worship. We offer the sacrifice of service and generosity. Hebrews 13.16, the next verse. But do not forget to, sh- to do good and to share for with such sacrifices God is well pleased. We offer Him the sacrifice of a life consecrated to His service. Romans 12.1 I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. our our first response to deliverance is to tell God, God, You delivered me. I'm going to worship You for it. But notice secondly, that we testify to others of God's kindness. Look at verse 16. It says, Come and hear all you who fear God, and I'll tell you what He's done for my soul. Friends, we have here in verse 16, the, the testimony of someone on the other side of trouble. And, and in this call, the one who's come through fires and floods and trials, he's bearing witness to God's mighty acts. And brothers and sisters, one reason one reason that God brings us through trials is so that we can be a blessing to those who are in trials. Paul writes Second Corinthians 1, 3 and 4, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comforts, who comforts us in all our affliction so that we may become able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. We're brought through trials so that we can bless those who are in trials. And if I could say a word to you older saints, If I could say a word to you you older saints, I think that this call to testify of God's kindness has an especially acute application to you. You Christians who have been through the ringer. You Christians who have been through fire and through flood and through affliction and through adversity. The church needs to hear from you about what God has done. Because I'm sure that there are members of this church who are in trials now. Members of the Springs RPC who would say, perhaps not aloud, that they're in the midst of fire and in the midst of flood, and older Christians, they need to hear you say, Come in here. Come in here, and I'll tell you what He's done for my soul. Come in here, I'm going to tell you about how God has dealt with me, how God deals with His children. They need to hear you say, Come in here, and I'll tell you what He's done for my soul. But as we think about this personal testimony, as, as we think about the psalmist call to come and hear, I think that it's important that we understand who's singing. You know, it, it's right for us, as we just did, to read verse 16 and to make personal application, saying, I will declare to other peoples what God has done for me. But we also, we also need to apply verse 16 by being those God-fearing ones who come and listen to the psalmist. He says, Come in here. And friends, when God's Word says, Come in here, we better come and listen. But this begs the question to whom are we listening? Who is singing this psalm? There's not really a consensus among the scholars and the commentators as to who the author of Psalm 66 is. Uh, most suggest that this is a king uh, writing this psalm after some great victory or deliverance. Some people say David wrote it or Hezekiah after, after Israel or Judah was saved from Assyria. But of course, it's speculation. It's conjecture. We don't know. As we said, it's, it's an anonymous psalm. We don't know the human author. But certainly we do know the spirit who inspired the psalm. And we know, don't we? We know for whom it was ultimately written. Doesn't this psalm give voice? to the earthly experience of our Savior. On the cross, wasn't Christ being brought through fire and through flood? At His resurrection and His ascension, wasn't He brought to a place of abundance? And doesn't Jesus testify about what God has done? Doesn't He say to His brothers, "I will Psalm 22, I will declare Your name to My brethren in the midst of the congregation, I will praise You. You who fear the Lord, praise Him. For He has not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. And brothers and sisters, the writer to the Hebrews, he tells us that it's because Christ was afflicted, it's because He passed through fire and through flood, that He's able to help those who are in trials. Hebrews 2.17-18 and 18. It says, therefore, in all things, He, that's Christ, Christ had to be made like His brethren, that He might be a merciful and a faithful high priest in the things pertaining to God. And he goes on. For in that He Himself has suffered being tempted, He is able to aid those who are tempted. And, and notice, friends, that that word that's translated tempted, it can also be translated tested. It's the same word. Well, we could say for in that He Himself has suffered being tested He's able to aid those who are tested. He's able to to aid and help those who are tried and tested in this sinful and evil world because He was touched with our same infirmities. He's able to help. Brothers and sisters, as we sing this psalm, we hear the words of our Savior. We hear Him invite us to follow Him both in the fellowship of His sufferings in the trials and the affliction and the adversity. But we also hear Him invite us to follow Him and to share in, in, in His exaltation and in the power of His resurrection. And as we close this psalm, the psalmist gives all praise and honor and glory to God. The psalmist testifies of God's kindness in trials. And finally, the, the, the psalmist testifies of, of God's mercy in hearing prayer. Verse 20. Blessed be God, because He has not rejected my prayer or removed His steadfast love from me. Well, we've seen, haven't we, in this psalm, rich encouragements to praise and bless our God and to testify of His works. He's the God of the world who has redeemed the people to be His own treasured possession. He refines that people through suffering. And in due season, He brings them out to a place of abundance. And friends, if if God, if the Lord has brought you through fire and through flood, pay your vows. Offer Him worship and sing His praises in the hearing of His people. But if you're in trials, if you are in the crucible of affliction and suffering, listen to, to the saints who have gone before you. But more than that, listen to your elder brother, Jesus Christ. He says to you, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the fire you shall not be burned, nor shall the flame scorch you. And for you suffering Christians, you storm-tossed and afflicted Christians, know that He's with you. He says to you, come in here, and even come and follow. And friends, know for certain that the captain of your salvation will in due season bring you out to a place of abundance. And so, brothers and sisters, praise and bless God for His redeeming and refining works, and testify of them. Amen. Please pray with me and ask the Lord for His blessing. Our God and our Father, how we thank You that You are a God who who says to the world, come and worship Me. How we thank You that in Christ, Abraham's seed, Your salvation is offered to the ends of the earth. And God, as we go through this sinful world, as we experience suffering and trials, I pray that You would give each one of us a a sight of heaven, that, that we could see that cloud of witnesses encouraging us, that we could listen to the words of our elder brother Jesus Christ calling us through. Thank God for those Christians here who are in trials. God, give them an extra measure of grace. Give them great assurance of Your love. And Heavenly Father, don't test them too long, but bring them out to that place of abundance. God, we praise You and and we bless You for Your kind and Your merciful dealings with us. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.